This morning I would direct your attention to that portion here in Hebrews chapter 10. It's found in verses 26 to 31. So we're considering something of a larger section this morning, but it's one which is cohesive, that holds together uh, as a whole. And our text then, which we'll be looking at with the Lord's help, is Hebrews 10 verses 26 to 31. We've just read the chapter in verse 6, we read, For if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. We find ourselves just on the heels of several exhortations to persevering faith. And so the momentum of the book of Hebrews has been building and building and building and setting before us one vista after another, which reveals the glory and supremacy and superiority of the Lord Jesus Christ, calling our hearts and minds upward to behold and gaze upon him by faith. And now we've come to that section of Hebrews where that doctrine is being reinforced, where it's being applied closely and carefully uh, to our souls. And the overarching theme is the call to persevere, the call to exercise faith in the object of faith, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. But these exhortations to persevering faith are constantly being backed by incentives. In other words, the Lord meets us where we are. He addresses exactly what we need. He not only tells us what it is that we're to do in response to these truths, but he gives us reasons, he gives us motivations, he gives us helps to do so. And those incentives come in two forms, as you, many of you will know well. They come in two forms, which are, in a sense, like two guardrails on either side of the, the path of the redeemed, the highway of, of holiness. We have on one side choice promises, and so the Lord comes and he he comes with overtures of promised blessing, blessings that are beyond our wildest imaginations, all that he will be and all that he will do for us in good. So we have that. Those are motivations which draw out faith of God's people. But on the other side, the other guardrail is warnings of curses. And this too is an incentive and motivation that the Lord provides. He gives us in mercy promises of blessing, but he is also giving us in mercy warnings about the curse that comes through unbelief and defiance and, and disobedience. And here too, he is revealing who he is and what he does. And so both of these together uh, must be a part of the warp and woof of biblical Christianity and because they are part of the warp and woof of the scriptures themselves. And so here in Hebrews, we're, we're finding these two things interwoven. And this morning we come to the latter. We come to the warnings, right? The warning about the curse of, that comes as a result of breaking covenant and unbelief and in disobedience uh, to the Lord. And what we need to hear from the onset is this, that as is the case with the whole of the Bible... Every word, syllable, letter that God gives to us, so it is with regards to both the promised blessings and with regards to the warnings of curses. 
we must receive and believe them both. The response that we're to have to this text is to receive it with meekness, to come under it, and to believe it with all of our hearts, to believe what God says with regards to the consequences of apostasy. And so with the aim of accurately understanding this text and faithfully applying it, we're going to need to answer three questions. And so our, our text is divided up this morning, the sermon under these three points, these three questions. The first question is this, who is being addressed? Who is addressed? And really under this, there are two questions, two questions that are related to this. Who, you know, in the first instance, who is being spoken of in the description that's given here in verses 26 to 31? In other words, who's described? Who is the person that's being described here? That's one question. A related but distinct question is, and to whom is this being directed? Who are these words of warning being directed to? There's overlap in answer to those two questions. So who is spoken of? Who is described in this, in this passage? And here we have, we have two trenches. I spoke of two guardrails. Well, you know, that's because there's two trenches, if you'll allow me to extend the metaphor a little, two trenches on either side of this text into which men have fallen in error, twisting and distorting uh, the word of God. We're answering the question, who is it that is being described? And so on one side, one trench is, is Arminianism. And so you have the Arminians and they say, well, this text is describing a person who is truly regenerated. They're born again. Uh, they're a converted believer, a believer who, through their sin, later lose their salvation and perish. So it's describing a truly converted person who loses their salvation and perish. And this is flagrantly, unequivocally false. This is not what this passage or any other teaches within the Holy Scriptures. As you know well, it would contradict flagrantly what we read elsewhere. Uh, Jesus said that all that the Father has given unto him, uh, the Son will lose none. You'll remember that uh, Paul says that he who began a good work in his people will bring it to completion. Or as Paul says to the Romans, there is absolutely nothing in this world, outside of this world, or anywhere else that can separate the believer from the love of God that is in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is impossible for the Lord's people who are in a state of grace to perish for those whom the Father has chosen, whom the Father has elected, these will most certainly be saved. All those whom the Lord Jesus Christ purchased with his own sacrifice and the shedding of his own blood and his, and his redeeming cross work will be saved, right? His death is efficacious. It is impossible for it to fail. It is impossible for it to be unwound. All of those in whom the Holy Spirit dwells and whom the Spirit has brought into saving union with the Lord Jesus Christ will never be uh, cut away from him. And so it is wrong to take this text as one, as some do, as a person who is uh, truly converted and who loses his salvation. That's not true. But then we have a trench on the other side of this text as well. 
and that would be the antinomian, the opposite error of Arminianism, antinomians. So the antinomians will put great emphasis on God's sovereignty. God is clearly, unequivocally sovereign. And they conclude to themselves, therefore, we are secured and we have nothing to worry about. This text gives us no cause of, of concern, right? It has no relevance to, to us because we have professed uh, faith in the Lord, irrespective of whether there is fruit from that faith, right? So this too is clearly false. This is not at all what the Bible teaches, right? The idea of presumption without true sound and saving uh, faith, what we sometimes describe as easy believism in, in modern uh, evangelicalism, those who will emphasize preservation and will completely disregard all of the calls to perseverance. Sovereignty without responsibility, taking refuge in what amounts to biblically a carnal security rather than a true security. So we have these two errors on, on either side. Now we come then to, to, to make clear that those are both errors and to see what the passage says as to who is being addressed. The person guilty of this sin in verses 26 to 31 is clearly not elect, not regenerated, not converted. But we recognize that the church of Jesus Christ is a mixed body. It always has been, and it always will be until the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The church is a mixed body, not unlike those who would say, well, the church is a collection of regenerate people. No, that's not at all the case. We don't believe that all are saved, and we don't preach that way, think that way, or pastor that way. It would be out of accord with what the Bible tells us. You'll notice that, um, that Paul doesn't say that, that those whom he's writing have committed this sin, nor does he say that they will commit this sin. In fact, he gives them some encouragement in verse 39, but we are not of them who draw back unto perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of our souls. But he says, if, if they do this, this would be the consequences. And so what's happening here is God is coming and he is speaking to his collective people as a whole. He's speaking to all of those in the outward administration of the covenant. He's speaking to the whole visible church. How do we know that? Notice the pronoun. In verse 26, it's we. He says, for if we sin willfully, or that we have received the knowledge of the truth. The apostle Paul is including himself. He's including himself in this. He's speaking of the church as a whole, the whole visible church. Later on uh, in verse 30, it says, the Lord shall judge his people. Right? It's speaking of uh, the visible church as a whole. And so, so the question comes then, you know, to whom is this directed? And, and really, why? Why is this given to the church as a whole? And the reason is twofold. One, because the reality is that some within the church do commit this sin. Not those who are genuinely regenerated, but those who are 
professing in one way or another and within the visible body, the reality is some do commit this sin. But secondly, because it is a warning. And it is a warning that God employs as a means used to strengthen the perseverance of all of his people. It's a warning when received and believed that actually strengthens the perseverance of his people. You see, God not only determines the end, he not only determines uh, the, the end of who's going to be saved, that they'll be saved, that their salvation is certain and secure in the grip of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but he also appoints and ordains the means to that end. He's in both of these things. And part of the means that he uses to strengthen the perseverance, the final perseverance of his people, is warnings, threatenings of the dangers of failing to persevere in, in faith. And so this, as I said in the introduction, demands a response from us, and it also is aimed to produce an effect within us. So the response is that we are to believe it. We're to believe that indeed those who commit this sin will perish forever. We're to believe that this is a sincere warning that is given to the whole visible church, which we are to come under and to take heed to. We're to believe it. But there's also benefits that are derived, right? It produces an effect. It produces increased attachment to Christ. So you think of the language of Isaiah 66 verse 2 where it says, but to this man will I look, God says, but to this man will I look, even to him that is, of, that is poor and of a contrite spirit and trembleth at my word. Right? This is speaking of the experience of the believer under these sorts of truths. We're to be humbled. We're to sense the, the desperation, our dependence. We're to see the warnings, the dangers, the pitfalls. We're to feel a measure of alarm. And we are to respond by trembling at the word of God. That is the, that is the fruit in Christian experience of faith being exercised in what God is saying. We actually tremble at his word. And we do so in a spirit of, of humility. And so we are given a, a warning here about who, who is addressed as describing someone within the visible church who is outside of Christ. But the word, is, the word of warning is addressed to all within the house and numbered among the people of, of God. The temptation, of course, is to come to a passage like this and to, in one degree or another, set it aside. I was talking to a friend a week ago. And he was recounting an experience when he was a young man. He said, I was absolutely exhausted. I mean, spent, finished, done. I was in bed. I was sound asleep. And I heard the fire alarm in the house. You know, the little fire alarms people have in the rooms of their house. So I heard the fire alarm. It kind of woke me out of my, out of my sleep. And I actually smelled smoke. I could smell smoke in the house. I'm lying in bed. And he said, I was so exhausted. I just said, you know what? If the house is burning down, they'll come tell me. 
and he pulled up his covers and rolled over and went back to sleep. Woke up the next morning and found out the house indeed had been on fire. And thankfully, they were able to, 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 to get it under uh, control and the house was saved. But he, you know, his point was, what incredible stupidity. And yet, is this not illustrative of where perhaps some of you find yourself this morning? Here is the Lord coming to us and addressing you and me. He's addressing us in this passage. And there are some who are going to be tempted to, as it were, be aroused slightly out of your stupor, smell the smoke, and roll over and go back to sleep. Pray God that it would, would, would not be so for any of us. Brings us to our second question then. What is the sin? Second question is, what is the sin? This is not speaking of sin generally. This is speaking of a specific sin. So in other words, it's not speaking of any sin, but it is speaking of one particular sin. It is, as we'll see, the sin of apostasy. Apostasy is deliberate, self-conscious, definitive, final rejection and repudiation of the true religion by someone who has professed it. Right? It's deliberate, self-conscious, definitive, final rejection or repudiation of the true religion by someone who has professed it. So in verse 26, we're introduced. For if we sin willfully after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sin. So here we have the, the, the sin is stated, but then it's described specifically in verse 29, where he goes on to say, what is the nature of this sin? You know, who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God, who hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing, and hath done despite under the Spirit of grace. And so he begins by introducing it this way, for if we sin willfully, and at first pass you think to yourself, well, isn't, isn't all sin willful in, a, in, in one sense? And in one sense the answer is, is yes, in the sense that we use our will in whatever we do. We choose to sin. We've made choices to sin. Things we've done are things that we have left, left undone. But that's not what's being described here. When he says sin willfully, he's speaking about persistent defiance. A self-conscious, deliberate choice of persistent defiance. Voluntary, decisive renunciation of known truth. And I say that because we need to be clear, I think, from the beginning here. Um, he's not describing the believer who wishes he or she would do otherwise. Right? We have that in Romans 7. There's the Apostle Paul who is, you know, a champion of faith and fruitfulness and of godly holiness and so on and so forth. And he's saying in Psalm, uh, he's saying in, in Romans 7, that which I would do, I don't do. And that which I wouldn't do, that I am doing. And he's describing the struggle with indwelling sin, the law of sin within our members and the law of God and the battle that that entails for the Christian. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me, right, from all of this, from the body of this death. And so it's not merely describing the believer who who does choose to sin, but 
is struggling, you know, who, who is dissatisfied, who is regretful of, of such things, right? Who, who regrets and repents of those sins. Neither is it describing a believer who stumbles under, under pressure. For example, Peter denied the Lord. But Peter did not apostatize. Right? He was riding high in the saddle and his pride and so on. He wasn't watchful. There was all sorts of other things that were happening. And he fell and it was a big fall, a painful fall. He wept bitterly. He denied his Lord repeatedly. And yet it wasn't apostasy. It wasn't an avowed, self-conscious, deliberate renunciation of the true religion. So it's not that either, is it? And it's not even an incident of, of caving under significant enticement, like we have, for example, with David, who's a man after God's own heart, who walked in faith, and you know, a man of, of God, and yet who committed grievous sins in adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah. So you, you recognize that by giving these sorts of uh, examples, we're getting clarity on the nature of this specific sin. Notice that he says in verse 26 that we have, uh, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth. After that we have received the, the knowledge of the truth. So this immediately shows us we're not talking about someone outside the church. We're not talking about a pagan in some village somewhere, someone who doesn't have knowledge of the truth or the gospel or the word of God. We're not talking about ignorant unbelievers as it were. It says, after having received the knowledge of the truth. The word received here is, is even stronger than you might think. Acknowledged, you could translate. right? Having acknowledged the truth. Having owned it in a sense. Having uh, professed it openly. And so here we have, we have those who, who have affirmed truth, who have professed truth, and who are now repudiating that truth. It is a sin against light, a sin against knowledge, a sin against what is right. So you have the language of 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 20. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein and overcome, the latter end is worse with them than the beginning, for it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they have known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. So similar language here, right? It is someone who has known and acknowledged the truth, re wholesale rejection of it, and embraced the lie, affirmed the lie, the lie of the devil, believed the lie. Right? So we, we recognize that there is a distinction between the sinfulness of sin and the heinousness of sin. All sin is sinful, not all sins are equally heinous. What's being described is the, especially in the description in verse 29, is how heinous this sin is. How utterly repugnant it is to God because of all of the aggravations that increase the heinousness and wickedness of this sin. And so we'll look at that in verse 29. What, is it, what does it entail? What does it mean, this, this sin that is willful, that, is, that comes after having received the knowledge of the truth? 
Well, we're told there three things, three characteristics. It is a person who has trodden underfoot the Son of God. Interesting, the language isn't Jesus or Christ or even Lord, but God uses the language the Son of God, right? Referring to the second person of the Trinity. Trodden underfoot the Son of God. This is, this is one who has made uh, use of Christ in a way that considers him worthless, right? A base use of the Lord Jesus Christ, who's seen and heard and acknowledged who he is and what he's done and then disposed of him, rejected him as utterly worthless. You have, you know, the language of, of Christ when he says, when the salt has lost its savor, it's worth nothing, right? But to be trodden underfoot by men, right? It's cast into the street, trodden underfoot. Or you have the language of um, in, in Matthew 7 where it says, neither cast ye your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn again and, and rend you. And so this is the picture. A person who's heard Christ, seen Christ, known of Christ, acknowledged who he is and what he's done, and who has cast him away as one that could be trampled upon so that you just walk all over him without any thought or any concern. The second characteristic is, and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing. Right. This is actually a sin against the offices of Christ, and specifically against his office as priest, which we've heard so much about in the book of Hebrews. Christ, who is the great high priest that offers himself as a sacrifice for sin. The blood of the covenant is the blood of Christ, and it's speaking of the person and, and, and work of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. But you'll notice, counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified, an unholy thing. This is speaking about someone that is within the outward administration of the covenant of grace. So this is a text that reinforces what we've heard so often, that there, this, this modern notion that is, is pawned off on, on, on so many, that there's a dichotomy between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament, you had covenant keeping and breaking. In the New Testament, the glory of the New Testament is, uh, you know, you can't break it. And everybody is, in the, everybody is in a state of grace, and only the believer is, is in the covenant, and so on. It's not what the Bible teaches, and we've made that clear a number of times in a number of different places. This is yet one more. In the New Testament, the covenant of grace is such that it is. There is covenant keeping and covenant breaking. And not everyone in the outward administration of the covenant is in Christ, savingly, and in a state of, of grace, which is why they can count the blood of the covenant, wherewith they were sanctified an unholy thing. When it says sanctified, we immediately think justification, sanctification, adoption. Sanctification is that work of the Spirit, whereby we die into sin and grow in righteousness and are conformed to the likeness of Jesus Christ. But you know better the word sanctified has two parts, right? It includes being set apart and being holy. And so here, the language sanctified is referring to those who have been set apart, who are 
not in the world, but in the church, who are in the administ outward administration of the covenant. They've been set apart federally. They've been set apart covenantally. It's similar to the language of 1 Corinthians 7, verse 14, where it says that the, the children of one believer are counted holy or sanctified. Right? They're set apart. They're federally holy. But the problem here is that that person who's being described has counted the blood of the covenant once again as worthless, as an unholy thing, as something not beautiful, not priceless, not immeasurably and infinitely valuable, not something that we should give all in order to have, but rather as something disposable, something worthless. So it reinforces the description, the first description, third description characteristic is, and hath done despite under the covenant of grace, as your margin will say, despite is contempt, and hath done contempt unto the spirit of grace. It's the spirit of grace that's being emphasized here. The Holy Spirit, who is the spirit of grace. Right? The Holy Spirit is the one who comes to convict the world of sin and of righteousness and judgment to come. The Holy Spirit is the one who regenerates souls, who enlightens the mind. The Holy Spirit is the one who takes the things of Christ and shows them to us. The Holy Spirit is the one who indwells the truly regenerate person and conforms them into the likeness of, of Jesus Christ. And here we're being told that that spirit of grace, infinite, divine, heavenly, wonderful grace is being held with scorn and contempt. What's being described here is insolent behavior, despising the entreaties and work of the Holy Spirit, twisting it and distorting it from what it truly is. Luke 12, verse 10, And whosoever shall speak a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But unto him that blasphemeth against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven. My friends, it is a mercy of God when he comes to a people to disrupt any comfy false peace. To make us alert to all that is at stake. Because in fact, indifference is the first step on the long road that leads to apostasy. And so the Lord comes in mercy to disrupt that inclination toward indifference. Now let me say something here. Pastorally, I know my congregation well, and there are some who are very tender, very fearful, Anxious about these sorts of threatenings that the Lord gives. Some of you are tempted to think to yourself, well, this has got to be me. It's describing me. This is, this is what I've done. This is, this is how I've been. This is, this is me. And the fact is, for, for those in that particular set of circumstances, it's not possible that it's you. So how, how can you know? How are you sure? I mean, is it, is it safe to conclude that? And is, is, this, is this for sure? It's not possible that it's you. 
right? You're, you're not only still in the church and under, under the means of grace, but your conscience is alive under the word of God. Your conscience is alive to these things, which is why you're so responsive uh, to them. What's the one being described here is a conscience that is hardened. A conscience that's dead to the things of God. A conscience that is cold. Who could care less about these things one way or another. And so for those who are tender and fearful, we need to, to strengthen those feeble knees and brace them. But the fact that you have not apostatized does not in any way lessen the warning of what could happen. Right? We must not blunt the edge of warning either and somehow just smooth everything over. Because those who are inclined to nod at the text, affirm the text, but in, all, in every other respect disregard this text, this word is especially for you who feel little anxiety or concern, no tremor or trembling under the word of God. This text is especially for you. And my friend, there are others who have sat exactly where you do and who have since perished. Those who think they stand, let them take heed lest they fall. The Lord comes with a warning are you tempted to drift this morning? I mean, these are some of the first signs that should alarm and awaken us. Are you tempted to drift? Are you tempted to loosen your grip? Are you tempted to turn away your face? Are you tempted to resist the, the pains of conscience? Are you tempted to try to quell and quiet your heart yourself? Is there no alarm within your soul? If so, those are the winds of temptation that are blowing you toward the lake of fire. And God in mercy is coming this morning to warn you yet again to turn and to live. Why? Well, that brings us to the third question. What are the consequences? Thirdly, what are the consequences? The fact is that none sink further into hell than those who have been nearest to heaven. You think about it, take heed lest you fall. The higher up you go, the further you are falling and the deeper you will, you will fall. Those who have gone as it were to the highest heights. You'll notice the quote in the bulletin that, the, that what a man spits against heaven will fall back on his own face. It's more true here than it is anywhere else, which is why the quote's there in the bulletin this morning. He says in verse 26, if a man, if we sin willfully after that we have received the knowledge of truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. So what are the consequences? First of all, the consequences are that there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. Think about it. There's only one sacrifice for sin. And that is the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is only one efficacious atoning sacrifice for sins. It's the death of Jesus Christ. And so these who find themselves in this condition 
are without pardon because the, the, the one and only sacrifice to save them has been utterly and definitively rejected and there is none left. There's no other sacrifice left. And so they are left unpardoned. They are left damned. They are left cut off. He says, well, that's what you don't have. You know, you, you, you don't have a sacrifice for sins, but what do, you what do you have? But a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation, which shall devour the adversaries. He's saying this is utterly certain, this much you know. The fearful looking for of judgment, this fiery indignation, zeal of, 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 of fire, right? A, a, a fiery fire, if you will, of, of indignation that shall devour the adversaries. The language of devouring, right? You think of a, a mouth that is opened up and it consumes something, right? You think of uh, Nadab and Abihu who offered strange fire, and we're told that the Lord sent fire from heaven and that fire devoured them. That's the language that's used. Or you think of Korah and Dathan and Abiram, right? And there they are. They've, they've repudiated the true religion, rejected God's minister and defied all of God's word. And what happens? Likewise, they're devoured. The earth opens up, swallows them, them whole. That's the picture. The Lord will devour them, he says. In other words... And we saw this already in our consideration of, of Hebrews 6, verses 4, 4 to 6, which is the other primary passage that apostasies dealt with in Hebrews. We saw there and see here, my friends, there is a line that a person can cross beyond which there is no return. There is a line beyond which a person can cross that there is no return, right? The self-conscious, deliberate, avowed repudiation of the true religion, a wholesale apostasy is irrecoverable. It's irrecoverable. In John's words, there is a sin unto death for which we cannot pray, right? There is a sin that will never be forgiven. It's not possible because God has given a person over in order to heap up wrath for the day of wrath. It's not possible because God has willed it to heap up wrath for the day of wrath. The certainty of your death, you know. You won't dispute that. How soon your death you don't know, and neither does anyone else. The Lord warns us to take these things seriously. In verses 28 and 29, he says, He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sorer punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who have committed these sins? Here's an argument from the lesser to the greater. And isn't it interesting? Again, it kind of contradicts the, the modern um, notion that, well, the Old Testament's heavy and it's hard and it's you know, mean and New Testament's easy and it's light and it's happy and there's no difficulties and so on. This text says the exact opposite. 
This text says that what we find in the New Testament is more severe than the Old Testament. That the punishments of the New Testament are sorer than those that were found in the, in the Old Testament. You know, you can go to places like Deuteronomy 13, you can go to places like Deuteronomy 17, and there you have uh, legislation in the law of God for those who forsook Jehovah, re rejected the true religion, and went and gave themselves unto false gods and worshiped them and sought to promote that false religion, the penalty was capital punishment. They were at that point to be executed. Here the Lord says there's something far worse than death because you can, you can sustain all sorts of things in this world. The most that can happen in this world is to die. In this case, execution. But he says what I'm describing is something that goes beyond death, something that endures forever and forever. Fear not him who kills the body but who can, having killed the body, cast the soul into hell as well. And so the Lord is saying, this is the consequences. The consequences entail damnation. The damnation of both soul and body for all of, of eternity. In verse 30, he says, For we know him that hath vengeance, uh, we know him that hath said, Vengeance belongeth unto me. I will recompense, saith the Lord. The Lord shall judge his people. What is it exactly that we need most? Not just a sight of the punishment, the penalty, the judgment that's to come. right? Not just being exposed to the reality of hell and so on and so forth. What you and I need most is a sight of God. We need a sight of God himself. Vengeance is his. The reward is his. And you must deal with him. At the end of the day, you're left to deal with God. Not me as a minister, not any other man, but with him. He's the judge. The day of judgment is remote to us right now. But your day of judgment is at hand. You say, well, how so? Because the sigh you make in death and the sound of the archangel's trumpet at Christ's return are in essence the same sound. Because the same condition that you leave this world, in which you leave this world on your deathbed, it is in that spiritual condition that you will appear before the bar of judgment. No alteration, no change. That brings it close, doesn't it? That brings it near to us. It makes us, it, it, it delivers us from being able to say, wow, the judgment's so far away, I don't have to worry about these things. You don't know when your day of death is, and the day of death seals what will happen on the day of judgment. And so it is proximate. It is close to us. And the Lord is coming and he's saying in verse 31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This is, this is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The fear of God is the cure to the fear of everything else. We need to fear him. We need to bow before him. We need to reverence him. And if we fear God, the fear of death and men and all else 
is banished from us. The point is that Paul is in earnest here. God, the Holy Spirit, who's writing this text to be read and preached is in earnest. I'm in earnest, but oh, that God would put you in earnest, my dear friend. This is no game. This is no tale. This is no joke. This is no idle threat. This is the living reality of the living and true God. We have come to meet with him. We are hearing his voice this morning. He himself is being set before us as the august, altogether glorious, righteous, holy, just judge of all the earth. And we're being told that we must deal with him, to appear before him, to meet with him, to hear from him. That's what's so necessary, and yet that is what is so often missing. It's like the days of Noah, isn't it? My friends, do not play the fool like in the days of Noah. While the door was open, there was hope. The door of the ark was open, there was hope. But the day of mercy passed, and in the end, God himself shut the door of the ark. And at that point, the door of mercy closed. And all of the dismissive sneers over those hundred years, all of the indifference of the population who sat under the preaching of righteous Noah, all of the protests, we've never seen this before, we've never experienced this, we've never heard of this, we've never read of this before, all that was wiped away in an instant. All of it was wiped away in an instant. And if you find yourself this morning in similar circumstances, well, I've never seen the day of judgment, oh, no one's appeared before God, I've never seen hell, all of these other things. Be solemnly warned. Oh, that God would deliver every last soul here this morning. That there would be no case in which I will be called upon at that day of judgment to bear witness, yes, Lord, they were warned. Yes, Lord, they were wooed under the gospel, but the warnings were not spared them. In all of your thoughts of the future, let your best thoughts be of the furthest future, your ultimate end before the Lord. And so the Lord comes with warnings. When we're dealing with holy things, we're dealing with spiritual things, we're dealing with the scriptures, we're dealing with Christ, we're dealing with the cross or an atonement, we're dealing with the work of salvation, we're dealing with heaven and hell, we're dealing with immortal souls that will never, ever die. These are the most sober and serious and significant things in all of the world. And the Lord is saying, do not take them lightly. Do not deal with God lightly. Do not deal with your own precious soul lightly. But rather hear him and heed him. We're to believe the warning in order that by faith and repentance we might strengthen our attachment to Christ. In Zechariah 7 verse 11, but they refused to hearken and pulled away the shoulder, and stopped their ears that they should not hear. Yea, they made their hearts as an adamant stone, lest they should hear the law and the words which the Lord of hosts had sent 
in his spirit by the former prophets. Therefore came a great wrath from the Lord of hosts. But my friends, you stand here this morning, you sit here this morning under the ministry of God's word within reach of mercy. And the Lord is calling all of us, those who have walked long with the Lord and have been through many things with the Lord and who have grown in faith and strength with the Lord, let, by the grace of God, go on in that, walking humbly and dependently upon him, sensing your need for him, living by faith in the Son of God, walking in sensitivity to sin and repentance from sin, watchfulness over sin, seeking closeness and communion with the Lord all your days. For those who have ventured out in those early days, having begun well, having professed that Christ is all in all, having taken refuge in him. Oh, my friends, that the Lord would put wind in your little sails and that you would be carried upward and onward by his grace, that both his wooings and the promises of blessings and the warnings would all be like wind in your sails, carrying you toward the Lord Jesus Christ. And oh, that those of you who are playing games with yourself, telling yourself lies, deceiving yourselves, fooling yourselves, or those of you who know in your own heart and mind that you've disregarded all that Christ has given, all that Christ has presented, who know in your own minds that you refuse to bow your knee to him, though you walk in light and though you've been given much truth, your heart inclines to the world. For those in that condition, know oh, that God would send a shot across your bow and that he would waken you and arouse you, that he would draw you and humble you, that he would bring you by faith to lay hold of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that for all of us together, we would be able to sing in the words of Psalm 19, verse 13, keep back thy servant also from presumptuous sin. Let them not have dominion over me. Then shall I be upright, and I shall be innocent from the great transgression. Stand for prayer. Almighty God in heaven, we bow down before thy majesty, desiring to fear thy name. O Lord, give us faith to receive all of the word of God, to not pick and choose, but to lay hold of all that is given to us, to receive it. Lord, help us, we pray, that these warnings so mercifully sent to us would by the ministry of the Holy Spirit be made efficacious and improved in us. O Lord, give us, we pray, to heed the word of God, to stand watchful, Lord, leave us not, forsake us not, and the work which thou hast begun, do as thou hast promised, bring it to completion. We ask it in Jesus' name.